This morning we are in our third out of a five-part series dealing with the spiritual practice of silence and solitude. And if you are new to True North, uh, you may wonder what this is all about. Uh, what does this mean? What do you mean three out of five? Can I, can I get anything out of today if I missed the previous two? Yes, I think so. I hope that you'll be able to. But I want to try to answer the question, why do we insist on practicing a kind of Christianity that actually does something once in a while? Because I think for many of us, our Christianity maybe is dormant. Maybe it's idle in its passive state. Maybe if we don't hear a particularly convicting sermon on Sunday morning, we don't do a lot. We don't think a lot about our faith. We try not to be wrong. We try not to be mean. We try not to steal money or lie or kill anybody. And we feel like that must be maybe what Jesus was talking about. Um, I think that what it boils down to for us here at True North is that we want to actually follow Jesus, which means Jesus must be moving somewhere, and we must be moving as well, and he must be going in a place where we have to get behind him and go where he goes, which is a whole relationship-oriented thing. It's, it's harder and different than simply reading an instruction manual and doing our best to get it right until we die. Um, we want to learn how to fill our lives up with habits and with rhythms that keep our attention on Jesus, that allow us to practice the presence of God wherever we are, that we realize that God is with us. I think we know that intellectually, but we don't really know what to do with that. What difference does that make, and, and why would I care about something like that? Many contemporary authors refer to this as the with God life. That's the way that it's sort of been termed in, in modern writing, but it's not a new idea, even if it's new to you and I. Over 500 years ago, in the very throes of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, arguably the most famous or second most famous to Martin Luther of the reformers, he wrote about the same thing that we are pursuing today in our own lives here in Anchorage. And Calvin was responding to several of his peers who challenged his devotion to God. You may not know that about the reformers, but if you don't just look at the, the tweets that people quote in their name, the sound bites, but you actually go back and read their writing, for instance, John Calvin's Institutes, they're deeply devotional. I mean, these men are effusive with their emotion. They feel and experience God all the time, and they want that so badly for other people. That's what motivates them to tear down these structures that the global Catholic Church had put up between God and people. They were all about getting people back to an intimate and daily connection to God by way of Jesus. Calvin had been challenged by his peers who encouraged him to focus only on doctrine and theology, which may sound familiar to some of you. Calvin wrote this in response. He said, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. In other words, it's not talk, it's walk. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Maybe that's a little more devotional thought than you've heard from John Calvin before today. But Calvin's right. That's what we're trying to get to. We want an understanding of the gospel of Jesus, an experience with God that possesses our whole souls, that penetrates to the inner recesses of our hearts. That means the parts of our hearts that we don't turn the lights on very often inside of, the parts that we're not trying to acknowledge, the things we aren't proud of. That's part of where we're gonna go today as we discuss silence and solitude. To that end, that's why we're doing what we're doing. The practice of silence and solitude is never about scoring Christian points. It certainly isn't about forcing God to take us more seriously or somehow investing enough into his world or his kingdom that he owes us something later on. This is about finding a way to bring ourselves, mind, body, and spirit into contact with God, which is not something that he's resisting. 
but it's very much a challenge for us because of the way that we live our lives, the world that we're a part of, and the sin that is naturally a part of us. So together we attempt to follow Jesus' model, and what that's looked like for us so far is retreating, finding a desolate place to be alone with God and to be quiet in the presence of God the Father. Two weeks ago, we established three key thoughts that help us navigate silence and solitude, and they are this, that silence and solitude are more than Christian solutions to overstimulation. Second, that solitude allows the after image of human contact to fade. That's sort of its operative mode, what it does for us. And third, that silence brings our subconscious inner monologue to the surface, and not just so that it can terrify us (laughs) to come face to face with what we really think about ourselves and other people, but so that we can deal with it. That if anything about our lives is going to change in the long term in a meaningful way, the way that we think, the way that we view the world, what we expect, those things have to be transformed. And so silence and solitude is a tool in our toolbox that helps us do that. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we started, we zoomed in a little bit and we started working through a seven-stage paradigm for silence and solitude based on the life and the experience of a prophet of God, a man named Elijah, that we heard Kelly read about just a few minutes ago. His story comes to us in 1 Kings chapter 19, and we worked through last week the first three stages of that paradigm. Uh, Those are first rest, then what we called the wall, and then finally part three was sensing your inner reality. That's as far as we made it last week. This week we're gonna work through the fourth and fifth stages of silence and solitude. If you're taking notes, You can write these down and we'll come back and kind of fill out what we mean by these, but stage four is called naming your inner reality. So you sense your inner reality in stage three, then you name it in stage four. And stage five is dialogue with God. So I have a lot more to say about both of those in just a few minutes, but first I wanna go back just a little bit. So this last week, between last Sunday and today, I got a lot of questions, um, more feedback than I typically get about a sermon. And it was all about one comment that I made that I think was less clear than it could have been. So I wanna take a second and just clarify what I meant. I appreciate you guys giving me feedback. It helps me know what you picked up on, what maybe you didn't, where I can help clarify. Um, A week ago, I said to you that we all need stage two of silence and solitude. We really need the wall, that it's counter to our culture, it's counter to the way that many of us have been formed, to, to lean into a space that doesn't have a clear objective, that we can't just hurry through and check the box and move on to stage three. But I made this statement. I told you that we needed to relearn or learn for the first time how to share a moment with God without trying to capture that moment. And I think that language was new and a little bit confusing. And to be frank with you, I had a whole bunch of points I was gonna make about that, but it was going too long and so I just skipped them. So I wanna take a second and try to kind of build that out for you and maybe shed some light on what do I mean when I say that we try to capture a moment with God and why would that be maybe wrong or unhelpful to us? Um, So for just a second, I'm gonna ask you to forget about Elijah in the wilderness. And instead, I want you to visualize Tiger Woods who's not in the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that. (laughs) Not yet, not the one that I have. So yeah, Tiger Woods is a golfer. I don't watch golf, but I've heard about him. I've seen him. You've seen him in his red Nike shirt, right? And he he does the fist pump thing. He's kind of famous for that when he makes the ball go in the hole, which is, I'm sure, very thrilling if you've been working on that for a while. But here's what you need to know about Tiger Woods, okay? In the early 2000s, Tiger Woods was on top of the golf world. He was the king. I mean, he could do no wrong when it came to golfing. He was winning every major tournament that he was a part of. Uh, maybe this will land on you in a way that is more meaningful than it was to me, but for 264 consecutive weeks, Tiger Woods was the unanimous number one golfer in the world. 264 consecutive weeks. No break. There wasn't one week where he dropped down and another guy had his moment in the the sun. Tiger had this thing locked 
down. And then after being pro golf's best player for 13 years, Tiger took a break. And if you know about his personal life, you know why. We don't have time to go into that this morning. But he did not golf at all for the majority of 2010 through 2018. He was away from the game. I'm sure he golfed in his free time, but he wasn't on TV. He wasn't winning big Masters championships. When he came back, which he did in late 2018, the game had changed in those nine years. And the biggest change was the removal of pro golf's ban on cell phone use by spectators. That was a massive change. There's been a lot of writing. I found some articles in the last couple of weeks in Golf Digest, a website I've never typed into my computer before and don't intend to ever type again. Uh, but you, you find out that this is sort of a watershed moment in the sport because prior to the, the lowering of this ban in around 2015, the golf courses were quiet, they were isolated, and everybody who was there was fully engaged in the moment-to-moment -moment play of the sport. Now for Tiger, this difference was immediately noticeable. I'll show you an example, okay? Take a look at this first photo. This is from Tiger's first big win in 1997. This photo was taken seconds after he sank the winning shot on the 18th hole. And when you look at it, to me it has the feeling of a Renaissance painting, don't you think? There's motion. The emotion itself is overwhelming. Everybody's enraptured. They're ecstatic. They're totally unaware of themselves. There are people in this photograph who are very undignified in the way that they are exalting with this ball that just went into this cup in the ground, okay? They're fixated on it. And it's like they're one being to me. When I look at this, it feels like they've almost become an one single organism working all together. They're totally dialed in and focused on one thing, but it's expressed in a hundred different faces. They're unified by their joy. They're unified by watching Tiger do what he did best. Now, look at a similar photograph from when Tiger returned. This is 2018. What do you immediately notice? 21 years later, it's apparent. I don't even have to tell you what's different here, right? This is Tiger's leading shot on the very last hole of the game. Now, again, I don't golf, but I've been told that this is a very dramatic moment as they close in on the 18th hole and begin to set themselves up to either win or not. Now, I ask you, where is everybody's attention? Well, you could argue that their attention is still on the ball, but it isn't really, is it? It's on the image of the ball that they can hold in their hand that's on the screen in front of their face. You can count on one hand the number of people that are not engaged with their technology that are choosing to be present in the moment. Everybody else is looking at their smartphones, focused not on the moment itself, but, and here's the key thought, focused on capturing the moment. They're not experiencing it, they're trying to keep it for later. This is a profound reality for the way that our minds and hearts work in 2022, and it's different. It's different from the majority of human beings on this planet for all of human civilization. We couldn't. We did not have the ability to grab a moment. We had to live it, experience it, impress it into our memory bank and try to keep it alive that way by telling the story over and over and over again. Now these profound moments become just a slideshow that we can whip out and show somebody but it never takes more than four, four or five seconds and we move on. And it has very little impact on us because we don't experience it because we're so consumed with trying to freeze it. Each of these people in this photograph is waiting for just the right second to press that little record button and grab the moment so that they can keep it. They're so committed to capturing the moment that they've lost their ability to be present to it. The moment is lost by the desire to take it captive. Now, if you bring that attitude with you into silence and solitude, you're not gonna get anything out of it. And maybe you don't know that we do this. Oftentimes, we find ourselves anticipating a future memory we find ourselves thinking through what it would feel like to brag about this spiritual experience to someone in our life group, maybe our spouse. Even if we would all say we're honorable, good, honest Christians and we have no interest in scoring Christian points or speaking Christianese, 
we do it anyway. We're, pr- we're pr- prideful. We find a way to leverage even God's kingdom for our own gain in little tiny ways, microtransactions, if you will, between us and other people. And so we need the wall, my friends, because there's nothing to take a picture of at the wall. It's a wall. It's just a wall. It's not going to turn into something else. We don't have to wait there, waiting, waiting, waiting. Is it going to change? Is this the moment? Is the breakthrough coming? Is it going to be today? You can start that way, and you'll make it two or three rounds of silence and solitude before you don't want to do it anymore, if that's your objective. But if we can embrace that the wall is good and we need to just be there, our eyes will be open when we finally come through it. When we move to stage three and we can begin to sense our inner reality, we will be sensitive to that inner reality. We'll be ready and present and available in a way that if we're simply trying to manufacture a moment or capture a moment for later so we can look back and say, I had a good Christian day today so I don't have to feel guilty or bad about myself, we're not gonna hear from God, we're not gonna get out of that what we should. The wall is where you and I wake up And it's where we calm down. It's where we let go of our lust for a great story to tell or a future memory to look back on with spiritual pride. And we simply learn to be who we actually are, no masks, and with God as he actually is. So just wanted to briefly clarify that. I think that was a fair request. Several folks said we didn't get that, capturing versus experiencing. Maybe you can feel it now, what I'm talking about, and why this is such an important and foundational practice for us as we attempt to go with God daily. So that brings us to 1 Kings 19. It brings us to stage four of Silence and Solitude. You heard Kelly read earlier. If you haven't had a chance to go there in your Bible, I recommend that you do it just so you know what the Bible says for yourself. You ought not just trust me implicitly. Um, I want to read back over 1 Kings 19 verses 9 and 10 and really try to highlight stage four. I want to get from sensing inner reality where we left off last week into naming inner reality today. So the Bible says this. Elijah came to a cave, he's on the side of Mount Sinai, and he lodged in that cave. He set up camp. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah, and Yahweh said to him, asked him a question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered and said, three things, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, who is the God of hosts. In other words, I've done everything for you, God, I'm here because I love you and I'm trying to pursue you. Number two, verse 10 In the middle, he says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. So, God, I have beef with the people around me. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I'm scared. I'm angry. I feel threatened by the people that are around me that think differently than I do, that want what I don't want, that are willingly going against you, God. I don't trust them. I'm not happy. It doesn't seem like my ministry is working. And then number three, the end portion of verse 10, he says, and I, even I alone, am left. I'm all that there is, God. And they want to kill me. They want to wipe all of us out. You, me, the prophets, everybody. So those are his three big complaints. And we saw last week that Elijah learned to sense his inner reality in the 40 days that he spent with God in the desert, making his way out on foot to the base of Mount Sinai. Elijah sensed in that time that he had become spiritually shallow. He became aware of his own confusion. He felt how in a hurry he had been. He became aware of his exhaustion All of this because of the years of ministry, faithful, good service that he had given to God the Father. Then Elijah took what is usually the most painful step in our time alone with God. He named his inner reality. This one hurts. He didn't just sense it, okay? And I'm not saying this is necessarily the hardest stage. I think the hardest stage probably is the wall because nothing about our modern Western lives can prepare us for that. But stage four hurts worse because it cuts us. It forces us to not only acknowledge, but speak, literally speak out loud into the space between us and God and to say what we have come to know about ourselves is true, to speak it. 
Not just to know it, not just to think it, not just to write it down, but to put it out into time and space by saying it aloud. Elijah's answer to God's question in verse nine is a real answer, and it's spoken out loud. That is what naming your inner reality is about. It is about telling God about your inner life. Now, you might ask a question here and say, why does God need me to do this? He doesn't, and I didn't say that he does. You need you to do this. You need you to do this. You need to become the kind of person who can speak totally honestly with God. For some of us, that may feel automatic. Many of you come from a Christian tradition where that was sort of the foundation of your faith, was learning to pray. But many of us, and I would put myself in this camp, were not discipled in how to pray well and how to pray honestly. We heard big, sweeping prayers in Shakespearean language from deacons who felt like they were 200 years old when they would get up and pray before the offering in our conservative churches. Those men are not wrong. It's not wrong to pray before we give offerings, and I think they used language that they thought would honor God, but it didn't teach me what to do. And if you're in that experience, this is a very important stage in this process for us, is learning to tell the truth. You have this experience in your family life. You all know what it's like if you've been married before for the honeymoon period to wear off and you begin to be honest with your spouse about everything. It's a little bit different than it was when you were dating and engaged. Early in our Christian relationship with God, it can be similar. We can learn to say and do things that sort of make us feel better or placate the people around us, but there comes a point when that's too shallow to keep us going. We need more from God, and frankly, we need to be more open with God about ourselves if he's going to begin to deal with and work on those deepest, darkest parts of us, what John Calvin called the recesses of our hearts. If the gospel is going to own our soul completely, it can't happen if we're wearing a mask. Now, I'll share a little bit here. This has been critical in my own life. This is part of why I can say this to you with such great authority, as I have walked this, and it has been crucial in my walk with Jesus. Uh, As recently as late spring of this year, I was forced to acknowledge some things about myself that I don't like and that I did not want to admit were true. And I had sort of played this tug-of-war game with who I really was inside uh, in sort of an ironic twist. The renovation of this building in many many ways has mirrored my own personal relationship with God across the last year. Uh, I feel that I've done a lot of work on the outside of myself. I've done a lot of work to put information and ideas and facts into my mind and heart. But as far as swinging wide the doors of my inner life and saying to God, bring on the sledgehammers and the saws and rip the carpet out and change the paint color and do whatever you want, I've always fallen short of that. I failed to open myself totally. Not, I think, because I was afraid, but because I didn't see myself correctly. I had not gone through the wall to the point where I could sense my inner reality. I could make up some stuff that I knew I had problems with from, from time to time, But those deep themes, the the truest things about me I had not confessed to God about what was wrong with me and who had hurt me and what I was afraid of and what I thought would happen if I ever opened that part of myself up to other people. So this all culminated when my wife, Andy, lovingly and with great strength, told me that if we and our family were going to move forward, if I was ever going to change, I had to seek out a counselor. I had to. And she wasn't unkind and she wasn't demanding at all. It was not a threat. It was never a threat from her. But it was a firm and appropriate requirement that was well within her rights as my wife, as the person that I'd invited all the way into my life. And it's one that I will be forever grateful for. She communicated to me what many of us find out when we begin to sense our inner reality, that we are far worse than we think we are and that we are never going to transform ourselves. So counseling is where I learned to do this. Going through counseling every couple of weeks is where I learned how to name my inner reality. And it's been very, very hard. 
Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I've been working through because none of you are my counselor, uh, and most of you are not in my life group, but I can give you plenty of examples of what this may look and sound like in your life. Naming your inner reality may sound like saying things aloud in silence and solitude, breaking that silence for a moment to tell God the truth about yourself and to admit to God, God, I am a liar. Jesus, I've learned about myself that I am an abuser. Jesus, I am a thief. I'm willing to take from other people and I'm not sorry unless I get caught. I'm scared, God, of what other people think of me, not just in the way that a 14-year-old is and so they want to get their nose pierced to fit in at school. I am scared to death of the societal weight that is on my back and that if I don't perform in a certain way, that I will be rejected. I'm afraid, God, that if people knew the real me, they would hate me. It looks like saying to God, God, I have learned that my family of origin is deeply broken and that I have been propagating that same broken system out into all of my relationships. Jesus, I am weak, could be something that you need to name. Jesus, I am ashamed. Jesus, I feel guilty. Jesus, I am haunted by memories from my childhood and I feel that I am frozen now in time as a six-year-old in the body of a 30 or 40 or 50-year-old. If you wanna get really honest and you find out that this is your inner reality, you'll name these things. You'll say, Jesus, I'm fed up, maybe with church, maybe with the Bible, maybe with trying to be somebody that I don't think I can ever become. Maybe being honest with God looks like admitting that you hate yourself or that you want out of your marriage or that your children have become a burden or that you are secretly living a life of lust or malice or hatred or dishonesty or confessing to God that you don't love yourself and so you don't really believe that anybody else can either, including him. We find these things out about ourselves when we go through the wall. Those 40 days in the desert for Elijah is where he changes from a man who feels bad to a man who knows why he feels bad. But we can't just sense it about ourselves and keep it secret. We've got to get it out. There's something profound about language, about the way that God designed our bodies to be able to speak and hear that presses into reality things that are boiling inside of us. To speak them out makes them concrete and real in a way that oftentimes is painful to face but is the beginning of transformation. Similar to the 12 steps in any kind of steps program, if you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous. Step number one is I admit that I have a problem and that I'm not gonna fix it on my own. Maybe for you, what your inner reality is is not so much what you've done wrong, but what's been done wrong to you, what other people have done. Naming that is still the beginning of finding healing through those things. We can't stop at sensing who we are and what we're carrying. We've got to name it. We need to say it out loud and make it real. We need to put it into the shared space between us and God where we can't take it back in and bury it again. That's part of the, the importance of this as an operative step for us. Naming is how we invite God in on what we are dealing with because we agree with God in that moment. We agree about what he already knows about us and we begin to participate with him in dealing with what is true about us. Not what we wish was true, not maybe who we have convinced other people we are, what is actually true. This is exactly what Elijah did. And it was this necessary level of honesty with God and himself that made him able to move on to stage five of silence and solitude, what I call dialogue with God. So let's see that play out. We'll read now verses 11 through 18 of 1 Kings 9. So God answers Yahweh's, excuse me, God answers Elijah's prayer. He says, go out and stand on the mountainside before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by Elijah and a great and strong wind came along and tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. 
this week as I visualized this passage, I've looked out to the mountains that are right here behind all of us on the east side of Anchorage, and I've imagined a wind so strong, not just to blow all the furniture off my porch, that happens five or six times a year here, I don't know if you guys experienced that, and I have to run down the street and grab my things and apologize to my neighbors, but wind that is strong enough to cut mountains to blow the rocks off of the face of a mountainside. This is something that you and I probably have never lived through because I don't think that people typically live through this kind of thing when it happens. But here's what's profound. Yahweh was not in that wind. Now here comes round two. After the wind, Yahweh sent an earthquake, but he himself was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake came a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. Then after the fire came the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard that whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He's wise to not just go out and stare God in the eye. And he stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and asked the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answered and said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, who is the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, finally, an answer comes, okay? He says, go then, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Leave this place. Leave the place where people come to hear from God. God is saying this. I'm speaking to you now. This is the answer that you need. When you arrive in the wilderness of Damascus, you will anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So first you're going to appoint a new king over the nation that opposes Israel. That's a little hard to understand. Then, verse 16, Jehu, who is the son of Nimshi, you will anoint to be king over Israel. So here's Ahab's replacement. You remember last year we talked, last year, last week we talked about how Ahab was a very bad king, worse than all the kings who came before him, and that he had embraced Baal worship, the worship of this god from Sidon. And so God is now saying there's going to be a new king, and you're going to appoint that new king. Then Elisha, go and find Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who lives in Abel Mahola, and you shall anoint him to be the prophet in your place. So Elijah, you're tired? You want to die? You're out of options? Well, here comes a successor for you. Maybe retirement is a better option than your life being over. Maybe there's still something for you and I to do together as we walk forward through time. But yes, I'll give you some relief. Your backup is on the bench. Then he says, the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, of the Syrian king, so God's going to use the Syrian king, he'll be put to death by Jehu, who's the Israeli king, the one who then escapes from the sword of Jehu, so God's going to use the Israeli king, will be punished and put to death by Elisha, your successor. So God is now laying out people and places and times and events that he is in control of that directly answer the deepest needs of Elijah's life. And then he answers Elijah's greatest complaint. Elijah has said more than one time, God, I, only I, am left, and we find out that it's not true. God says, I will maintain, I will reserve for myself 7,000 in Israel, all of the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So you're not alone, Elijah, and your ministry has not been a waste. What brings you and I to a place like this? What's intriguing to you about silence and solitude? What draws us into a place where we pull the emergency brake on our lives? Where we send that text to our spouse and say, I can't do it anymore, I'm freaking out, my nerves are frayed, I'm out of adrenaline, I've had nine cups of coffee and it's 11.30 a.m. and I don't know what else to do. What drives us there? I think it's some kind of desperation, right? Many of us are not maybe taking silence and solitude seriously or have not up to this point in our walk with God. 
because we don't know what's going to happen. We're not sure why it's valuable, but we find ourselves often in a position of desperation, and that desperation opens us to a new set of practices. We think to ourselves, what got me here isn't really helping. It doesn't seem like it's going to get me past this point. So yeah, maybe silence and solitude feels a little spooky to me, but I'm willing to give it a try and see if God will meet me there and find out what he has for my life. Like Elijah, we initially step off the beaten path and into the desolate place out of desperation. And unless you have followed Jesus a long time and had great mentors, you are likely not rhythmically practicing silence and solitude as sort of a daily maintenance practice in your life with God. You and I are here because we're desperate for guidance. We want to get God's perspective on our lives. We want to get God's will correct, right? We believe that right and wrong are real and that God wants us to do one and not the other, but we don't know how to know the difference sometimes. And so we come to God quietly, we pull back and we say, I'm here and I'm listening and I'm ready to know. If we are careful, we give ourselves a chance to rest at the beginning of that process, right? This, this seven-stage paradigm is not just true for one individual instance of silence and solitude. It's also a macrocosm. My experience of silence and solitude follows this on a microscopic level. Every week when I Sabbath, I start with rest, and then I have a weird period of time where I have a lot of questions and no answers, and I kind of feel weirdly distant from God, or I have to admit that I've been maybe distant from God. Even though I work at a church, you would think that maybe that would automatically drive me into God's presence. No, not really. I still have to do this just like you do. But it's also true at a macro level. As I go through years and months at a time of silence and solitude, I find myself having had big sweeping weeks that are full of revelation for my life. And then a lot that aren't. A lot where I'm just doing the thing because I believe that it's good and right and I want to be faithful to God and even if I don't get anything out of it, it is good to be in his presence. After we rest, we come to the wall. The wall does its work. We learn at the wall that even if we cannot sense God directly, we can be with him, and he will be with us in the quiet of lonely places. A common insight that many apprentices of Jesus gain at the wall is that God is not just a presence, that he's not just a power, but that he's personal. And in those moments, God becomes for us more than a resource. He becomes our present reality. That's really what it means to practice God's presence, is to understand that he is timeless. He is eternal. And as we learn that that timeless, eternal God, who's with us all the time, everywhere that we go, loves us, that he would turn the focus of his life onto our lives, that he upholds our lives, this is where we get our space, the space that we need to sense our inner reality. This is the one relationship that can handle us naming the darkest truths about ourselves where we know that at no point is God gonna go, if that's who you really are, I want a divorce. If that's who you really are, I'm changing my last name, I'm leaving town, and I don't wanna be connected to you anymore. God won't go. In a way, this should be logical to us because we believe that God is omniscient, that he knows all things, but we live like he doesn't really know us. And so this is a practice where we begin to participate with God, what he already knows, naming a thing that he's aware of. And then when we survive that process, because we will, God will get us through it, we begin to speak all the terrible truths that we carry inside of us. We begin to experience the freedom that Jesus promises when we allow the truth to set us free. Not that we originate that truth or we name or claim our own truth, but that we admit to God what he already knows about us and that clears the air between us and him as we refuse to continue to live our false life. So in that space, listening closely for the Spirit of God to communicate with us, we move from an inner monologue. All these four stages up to this point are things that you can do by yourself. And in stage five, we begin to meet with and commune with God. It becomes a dialogue with him. 
So two passages from the New Testament come to mind when we start to step into the realm of hearing God speak. The first is Jesus' teaching in John 14. So I want to read just three quick sets of verses here. First, in John 14, 16, Jesus says this to you and I, to his apprentices. He says, I will ask the Father, and the Father will give you another helper, another of the same kind, and he will be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Then in verse 22, one of the disciples has a question. I think it's funny that John writes Judas, not Iscariot, not the bad Judas, don't worry, okay? Said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us but not the world? Is there gonna be goggles that come in the mail where we can see you and other people can't? What is this gonna be like? And Jesus answers him and says, if anybody loves me, then he'll keep my word. And if they do that, my Father will love him, and we, we, my Father, the Spirit, and I, this is a Trinitarian verse, we will come to that person, and we will make our home with that person. The present reality of the kingdom of God, he's here, he's with us. Then in verse 25, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, the one the Father will send using my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here's what this means for you, New Testament, New Covenant, Christian believer, follower of Jesus. Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would make himself known to Jesus' followers in a new way from how he had done that previously after Jesus left earth. Jesus said that the Spirit would be another of the same kind as him, in other words, another rabbi for us to follow, to lead us, to teach us, to guide the apprentices of Jesus from immaturity on into maturity. Jesus said that in some sense, he himself would remain visible or at least able to be sensed by his followers and that the Father and Jesus would come to those who follow Jesus and that they would make their home with those kinds of people. Jesus then says that the Spirit would teach Jesus' apprentices and bring to mind everything that Jesus has taught. So here's what's true for you today. Regardless of your church background, here is Jesus telling you that you should expect to be in an active relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, dwelling together or abiding, to use Jesus' word one chapter later in John 15, with you and actively communicating with you. Now, if you're a hardline cessationist, most of you probably don't even know what that means. I'm sorry if that's you today and this makes you uncomfortable. I didn't write the Bible, so I can't take responsibility for what Jesus said. But I recommend that if you have a hard time with that idea of hearing from God, of God actually having something to say to you that's unique to your life, then talk to God about that in silence and solitude. There you go. There's your solution. Take it to him, listen, and he will tell you what he wants you to do. The second passage I want you to hear is from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. This is Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 13. Paul says this about the spirit of God and the role that he plays in our lives. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We know that, right? You live without God, you're going to destroy your life and everybody around you. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, that you might become a fearful person again, but you have received the spirit of adoption, which makes you sons and daughters of God. It's by that spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father, to God. That he's not just a ruler and a king far away. He is our relation. He's part of our family now. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, excuse me. So Paul says the Spirit gives you an ability that you don't have without the Spirit. The ability to change your habits with practices. That's what verse 13 is all about. Putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit means engaging with your spiritual access to God in order to change the way that your body behaves. So what does that mean? What are the things that your body wants to do? Your body wants to lust. 
Your body wants to be angry. Your body wants to rage. Your body wants to respond with violence when you've been crossed by people that you don't like or trust. Your body wants to respond with panic, anxiety, physical fear when you come into an environment where you're not sure how things are going to go. These things are all subject to transformation by the power of the Spirit. This includes silence and solitude. So part of why we do silence and solitude is because it actually changes the way that we physically react to the things that stimulate us in our lives. But more importantly, for the sake of stage five of silence and solitude, dialoguing with God, is verse 16. The Spirit of God himself bears witness, which means he gives testimony to. He teaches, encourages, comforts, upholds, challenges, and engages your spirit to the end that you find that you do not believe God has saved you in spite of all your doubts and how far you feel like you still have to go, but you begin to believe that he saved you because he wants to. You begin to see that those things that used to drag your life down and tear your relationships apart have actually been paid for and handled such that you now have a choice. You don't have to stay that way once you are in Christ. So back to Elijah and we'll land the plane here. After the drama of the windstorm, after the drama of the earthquake, the firestorm, God came to him in the quiet in a very personal way and he asked Elijah the same question that he's already asked him once when Elijah arrived at Mount Sinai. And Elijah's answer was the same, which is interesting, but now it's a conversation. Now it's not a monologue anymore, it's a dialogue between God and Elijah, and it is a conversation that is framed by God showing his power in Elijah's life. But then, shifting Elijah's perspective by not making the conversation about the power and by not making that power directly available to Elijah. Isn't that what you would expect? Wouldn't you expect if God's gonna sort of have this gun show outside the cave mouth, right? Here's what I can do and I'm gonna flex and show you how big and strong I am. Wouldn't you think then, similar to Moses earlier in the Old Testament, that God might say, here's a sword or a staff or a spell book or a wand or something and if you rub the lamp the right way or say the incantation, you too can have windstorms and earthquakes and firestorms and all that power will solve your problems. But that's not what happens. God shows Elijah what he could do, and then he gives Elijah something different. This is where the dialogue with God is countercultural. You can't just know about the Bible. You can't just know about God. You can't have just memorized doctrine and theology, though you ought to do those things too. That can't be the total foundation of your relationship with God. You've got to be with him, because he's not going to just hand you a weapon to fight off your enemies. He's not going to just give you a jar of some panacea that takes away all your spiritual ailments. He's going to give you a plan, he's gonna give you assurance about that plan, and then he's gonna walk with you. You see, if Elijah's biggest problems were that he is being hunted by assassins, or that he's been abandoned by his congregation, or that he's the only believer left in his whole country, then sure, being able to summon a tornado, or an earthquake, or a firestorm could go a long way to get rid of those assassins, to convince people to follow Yahweh, and to elevate Elijah to the role of sort of wizard in residence in Israel. But those are not really Elijah's biggest problems. This is why this process is so important. They are the problems that drove him into silence and solitude, but now that Elijah has been with God, he has learned that he is carrying his real problems inside of himself. It's his despair. It's his hopelessness, his feelings of futility and impotence. It is these that God addresses when he finally does speak to Elijah. And along with a personal voice comes personal instructions specifically tailored to the deep inner needs Elijah has. New kings are coming who will rewrite the rule books in Israel. A new prophet will come to succeed Elijah and to give him rest and an end point for his ministry, which must have been a massive relief for our brother. 
God gives a promise that even when Elijah feels alone in all of Israel, Yahweh will preserve 7,000 other believers so that his people will never totally abandon his way. This is what it means for Elijah to hear from God. There's no Armageddon visions. There's no new revelation that changes the rules of faithfulness or what it means to know God or follow God. No new requirements for those who would come after Elijah and no echoing silence on the other side of Elijah's prayers. Steps to take people and places already chosen and prepared, and a personal God who goes with Elijah every step of the way. This is what dialogue with God is all about. Guidance, direction, and personal assurance. And I don't know if you believe that that's available to you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you believe that if you would take the time to retreat from all that drags you down and pulls you a million different directions with hurry and busyness and anxiety, that if you would sit with God and say to him what is really going on inside of yourself, that he has an answer for you. I think sometimes our greatest fear is that if we were to go to that place, we would either find out that God's not there at all or that all he has is a list of demands for us. And yet every time that his people come into his presence, he is loving and kind and gracious. And that will be true for you as it has been true for everybody in the Bible and as it has been true for me, a person who I think many of you can trust. The relationship with God runs right through the entire experience for Elijah and it opens the doorway into dialogue and it anchors Elijah in God's presence throughout the dialogue with a promise that the relationship will go with Elijah even when he leaves the mountain and returns to where he came from. So I wanna leave you today with a quote from a man that I bet none of you have ever heard of before. Uh, A guy named Howell Harris. He was a Methodist missionary to Wales in the early 1700s. He had an encounter with God one day. He used to climb up in the bell tower of the steeple of his church because it's the only place where his parishioners would leave him alone. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So he'd get up there with the bell, sit quiet. There's bird's nest probably, and he's trying to hide so nobody can see him. What's interesting to me, this is just a side thought, but I think you'll think it's funny. He was a Methodist missionary, but he actually founded the Presbyterian Church in Wales. So at some point, I don't know... He was cross-pollinating. But he wrote about this in his journal, okay? He got up in the bell tower, and this is a quote from his personal journal, his devotions with God. This is a man who is staunchly doctrinal and theological in every area, and this is his encounter with Jesus. He says this, I felt suddenly my heart melting within me, like wax before the fire, with love to God, my Savior. And I also felt not only love and peace, but a longing to be dissolved with Christ, what a metaphysical way to write in the 1700s. Huh? I just wanted to be like, dis, dis, uh, like made into liquid and blended. I don't even know what that means. But I wanted to just go so deep into Christ that there was no more me anymore. That's what he's saying. There was a cry in my inmost soul with which I was totally unacquainted. I never before had felt this cry out. But it was Abba, Father. Like Paul said in Romans, that's the cry. I knew that I was his child. I knew that he loved and heard me, and my soul being filled and satiated, or satisfied, I cried out, literally, aloud. He said, it is enough, I am satisfied. Give me strength, and I will follow thee through fire and water. This was Howell's experience 500 years ago, 300 years ago, excuse me. And, and for him, I think he, he gets this glimpse of the thing he wasn't expecting, and I hope that that'll just kind of spark your imagination a little bit here today. 
This isn't just for people that you might label spooks or mystics or weirdos or Eastern Christians or progressive. This has been the heartbeat of what it means to go with God. This is the thing that Christians have looked for from the day that Jesus ascended. How do I get back to the place where I go with that rabbi everywhere? And that's what we want. So I invite you to just meditate on that today. We're gonna do what we've done the previous two weeks. We're gonna take 60 seconds of quiet. You can close your eyes, you can leave them open, you can move around, whatever, just try to be quiet. If your baby cries, we love that, we love your baby, we're glad they're here, that's okay. We're gonna take 60 seconds and I'm gonna pray for you and we're gonna be done this morning. Your 60 seconds of quiet begins now. Father, we, uh, we are here because we believe that you can do something for us. God, that our, our lives are not over, that there's a future still out in front of us, and that it's not gonna be easy. That's why we need you. That's why we need you to go with us, God. I think all of us who are here have lived long enough to know that life does not get easier with time. Relationships do not naturally untangle or clarify or heal, and that we can't transform ourselves. So God, would you give to us as we choose to try to be with you? Would you give us a sense of you at which we might cry out, it is enough and I am satisfied. Satisfy us, God. And and let us not be satisfied in anything but you. Let us be upset and frustrated and uncomfortable and, and weary of all the other things that draw our attention away, God. Let us maintain a pure appetite for you and your presence. I pray, God, that this would drive us deeper into our knowledge of you, that the two would go together, that we would know your word better than we ever have before, that we would be in your presence longer and more than we ever have before, that we would speak the truth in our own lives and to the people around us more and better than we ever have before, that the things that you say in your word are markers for faith in Jesus would become real and true for us, no longer goals way out in front, but the day-to-day experience of what it means for us to go with you. We trust that you can do this, God. We're asking you to do a lot. I pray that you give us a posture of openness and willingness as we walk through this process together. We love you and we trust you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.